you heard that scream when they went in. When we started looking at Acts, we said that this is not an instruction manual on how to do church. We're not meant to slavishly copy everything that the early church did. But this book has a lot to teach us about what our priorities should be as a church and what it means to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. One of the things we're going to see today is how crucial the Bible is to our message as a church. And you might think, well, did I get out of bed for you to tell me that? I know that. But I did say the Bible, not just the New Testament. Sometimes as Christians we struggle to see the importance of the Old Testament. And maybe we struggle with this especially when it comes to sharing the good news about Jesus. We might think sometimes, isn't the Old Testament a bit beside the point when it comes to that? Or even a bit of a hindrance? Well, this morning we're going to look at Acts chapter 17. And this passage shows us that in terms of our mission in this world, we need the whole of God's truth. Not just the bits that are obviously about Jesus. If you're using one of the church Bibles, it's page 1113, Acts 17. And I'm going to read the whole chapter. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they put Jason and the others on bail and let them go. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Many of the Jews believed, as also did a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast. But Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens. 
and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that man would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. This is God's word. In this passage, we see a pattern that's probably familiar to us by now. It's a pattern we've seen all the way through the book. When the believers preach the good news about Jesus, some people listen and believe, and others don't. And the ones who don't often get aggressive and sometimes violent. Almost every chapter of Acts is showing us there's no silver bullet when it comes to sharing the message of Jesus. There's no method or technique 
that's going to sweep everybody into God's kingdom. It doesn't matter how well we share the message, there will always be a mixed reaction. But even as this passage reminds us of that all over again, it also shows us that as Jesus witnesses in this world, we need the whole Bible. We need to be people who work hard to understand the message of the whole Bible. And we have to work to share the message of the whole Bible. Here's the first reason why. The whole Bible persuades us about the need for Jesus and his work. Let's just remind ourselves of where we are. Last week we left Paul and Silas in Philippi, where they ended up in jail. Then, having been released, they travel about 100 miles to Thessalonica. And verse 2 tells us, as his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue there. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. The scriptures here mean the Old Testament. Even if parts of the New Testament had already been written down, they certainly wouldn't have been used in the Jewish synagogues. And these verses tell us Paul was doing two things. First of all, he was proclaiming Jesus to them. He was telling them about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and his exaltation back to his Father's side in heaven, and the fact that he's going to return to this earth as the conquering king. But Paul was doing something else as well. Second, he was taking these people to the Old Testament. He was doing that to explain and prove that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. In other words, what he was telling them about Jesus was not some random story about an unusual man. It was the story of how the God of Israel provided a savior for the whole world. The word Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, meaning God's chosen one. And no doubt, Paul pointed to specific verses in the Old Testament that were prophecies about the Messiah. But I'm quite sure he also did much more than that. Because Israel's whole history shows the need for a savior. All their years of wandering without a home, their law with its whole system of sacrifices for sin, the record of their turning away over and over again to worship idols, all their human kings that were more failure than success, and finally their defeat by their enemies and their exile away from Israel. All of that shows the need for a savior, a divine king who could rule his people with righteousness and justice. We miss the point of the Old Testament if we think it's only good for cherry-picking the odd prophecy about the Messiah. The whole thing 
shows us that human beings need a Messiah. It's true, the Old Testament basically follows the history of one fairly small nation. But the story of that nation is in one sense the story of the whole world. It tells us that by ourselves we're cut off from God. We're wandering from one false hope to the next. Someone said to me recently, as I read through the Old Testament and all the rebellion of the Israelites, I finally realized it was talking about me. Yes, the history of Israel is historically true, but it's not just there for people interested in ancient history. One of God's reasons for preserving a record of Israel is to teach us about ourselves. But alongside all of that human failure and powerlessness, the history of Israel shows us God patiently and carefully working to rescue those rebels and reconcile them to himself. So the point is, whether we are Jews or not, we need the Old Testament because it persuades us about our need for Jesus and his work. Well, here in Thessalonica, the reaction to Paul's reasoning from the scriptures is very similar to what we saw last week in Philippi. Some people believe, others get angry. The angry ones form a mob, start a riot, and the end result is that Paul and Silas have to leave Thessalonica. That seems to be the condition of the Baal that's mentioned down in verse 9. The authorities release Jason on the condition that his friends, Paul and Silas, leave. But Paul and Silas are like Duracell bunnies. We're told that they march 50 miles to Berea and they do the whole thing all over again. Look down to the middle of verse 10. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. The notable thing about these people is that they don't reject Paul without hearing him, but nor do they unquestioningly accept everything Paul says. Instead, we're told they carefully test what he's saying against the scriptures. The word examine can refer to a legal trial. They go about this with seriousness and with open-mindedness. In fact, that phrase of more noble character could be translated more open-minded. Their attitude is exactly right. They received the message with great eagerness and they did the work to check the message out. So the Bereans don't look to Paul as some kind of guru they're not going to turn off their brains and just be indoctrinated. They measure Paul's message by the ultimate standard, God's word. 
And I would suggest to you, not only should that be our attitude as Christians, but when God is opening someone's heart to the good news, they will have this attitude too. If someone claims to be interested in Christianity, but shows no interest in examining God's word, then we are right to wonder if they're really interested at all. I once heard a pastor talking about giving people Christian things to read and pointing them to good Christian things to read. I asked him afterwards, what do you do if people don't want to read? He said, if they're really interested, if they care, they will want to read. Now I know that we're all different. Some of us love to read. Some of us find it as much fun as having our fingernails pulled out. And some of us honestly just find it a serious struggle to read. But even if reading is not our natural inclination, even if we don't read for fun, if the good news about Jesus holds any interest for us, we will examine the scriptures. At the very least, we will do that. So if you claim to be a Christian, but you never crack your Bible from one week to the next, then stop and ask yourself what that says about you. What does it say about how much the God who speaks in the Bible really means to you? And it's worth saying too that while teachers are a gift from God to the church, the church should never rely on the teachers to the point where individual Christians stop examining God's word for themselves. When the church gets into that state, it will soon be blown off course by false teaching. If more Christians started examining their Bibles carefully, a whole lot of TV preachers would go out of business overnight. The church needs teachers. And in order to keep those teachers honest, the members of the church need to open their Bibles, both on Sundays and in between Sundays. Keeping the teacher honest isn't the only reason to read your Bible, but it is one reason. Well, here in Berea, many people believe but then the Jews from Thessalonica arrive. And again, they stir up the crowds against Paul and his team. And verse 14 says, The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast. But Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The man who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Presumably, Silas and Timothy are able to stay because they are less well-known than Paul. Paul seems to be like a lightning rod. Wherever he goes, he gets the sharp end of the opposition. And so he moves on to Athens. He would probably have gone there by sea, and if he did, it was about a 300-mile journey. Verse 16 says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, 
That's Silas and Timothy. He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. With time on his hands, Paul does what any tourist would do in this very famous city. He does some sightseeing. And no doubt he would have seen, among other things, the Parthenon. Athens at that time was a leading center of learning. It was associated with the famous Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. And even though by the time Paul visits, its glory days are long gone, it was still a city with a big reputation. And yet as Paul walks around, he doesn't get wowed with admiration for this city. Nor does he get intimidated by its big reputation. Instead, he is greatly distressed that the city is full of idols. Historians tell us parts of this city were literally lined with idols. One writer says it was a forest of idols. Sure, they were created by the finest sculptors of the day. Nowadays, we would look at them as works of art. We do look at them that way. But their purpose when they were made was to be objects of worship. And so they were taking worship from the one worship belongs to. Idolatry is worshiping something that's not God as if it is God. And on that definition, our society today is also a forest of idols. We even use the word idol in a positive way. Pop stars are called idols. And the biggest idol at the moment seems to be every individual's right to do whatever they want to do. We worship our own desires today as if they're God. But you'll notice here in Athens, Paul doesn't fall into either one of the traps that we Christians often fall into. We have a tendency to either admire the idols along with everybody else, or to get angry and start shouting about it all. Paul does neither. His great distress drives him to point these people away from their idols to the true God. He responds constructively and positively. He doesn't just throw up his hands in disgust and horror. He opens his mouth to give them good news. And as he does that, he widens out his approach here in Athens. Look again at verse 17. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. 
In Athens, Paul branches out beyond people who know the Jewish scriptures, our Old Testament. He begins to talk to people who have no background to help them understand the message about Jesus. That's clear in their reaction. They call him a babbler who seems to be advocating foreign gods. They say he's bringing new teaching and strange ideas. Again, Paul is in a situation here that's very similar to ours today. 50 or 60 years ago in this country, most people had some idea of what was in the Bible. And they often had a rough idea of the significance of Jesus, even if they didn't believe any of it. But now, there's very little chance of that. Paul ends up in front of the Areopagus. That translates into English as Mars Hill. This is the Supreme Council of Athens, and it was named after the place where it met. Now, it's not clear in verse 19 whether Paul is invited politely to speak to the council or whether he's taken there by force. But either way, Paul seizes the opportunity with both hands. And his approach here is very helpful for us. Because when he talks to these people who don't know the Bible, he doesn't start with Jesus. He starts at the very beginning. Why does he do that? Because the whole Bible gives us the big picture about God and ourselves. Once we understand God and ourselves, we're ready to understand Jesus. And Paul begins by finding a point of contact with these people. Verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown I am going to proclaim to you. All these idols are greatly distressing to Paul. But he knows that all this false worship is actually a misguided search for the one true God. G.K. Chesterton once said that every man who knocks on the door of the brothel is looking for God. What he meant was, when a person pursues the idol of sex, what they are actually longing for is God. But they're trying to satisfy that longing in the wrong way. God is the one they're looking for. They just don't realize it. Every man who knocks on the door of the brothel is looking for God. And we can say the same thing about all idols. Whether they're made of marble, as in the case of Athens, or in the case of our culture, whether they're idols of money or celebrity or personal freedom. All idolatry is looking to a false god to satisfy our need for the true god. And no idol can deliver on that. We need the real thing. 
Paul recognizes that, and so he says to these people, let me proclaim to you the unknown God you're actually looking for. Now, it is true that idolatry is not just misguided. It's also sin. So later, he will call them to repent, to turn away from their idolatry. But his way in is to say to these people, let me point you to what you're actually looking for. Now you'll notice that the main part of Paul's speech is set out here in just 10 verses. It takes about two minutes to read. But speeches in the Areopagus went on for hours. So it is highly unlikely this is the full text of Paul's speech. What we have here is a summary of what he said, basically his main points. As he spoke, he would have fleshed all this out in great detail. But it is clear he doesn't start with Jesus. He starts by giving these people a context for understanding Jesus. He gives the big picture about God and ourselves. And he starts where the Bible starts with God and his position. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. We will never understand anything else if we don't first see this. God made us and he does not need us or anything that we can give him. Not even our worship or our love. God is not needy in any way. And in contrast to that, we are utterly dependent on him. Whether we realize it or not, we depend on him for life and breath and everything else. That is the starting point of the Bible. And if you and I are going to know God, it has to be our starting point. God is God. He is in control. And we depend on him completely. And having made that point, Paul then explains our purpose, problem, and responsibility. Verse 27. God did this so that man would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. In verse 27, Paul says, God did this. And we have to ask, he did what exactly? I think it links back to the beginning of verse 26, which says, 
from one man, that's Adam, so we could say from one human being, God made every nation of human beings. So the point is, God made us, and he made us so that we would seek him, and reach out for him, and find him. Our purpose, Paul is saying, is to be in fellowship with God. That's what we're for. But even as he explains that, Paul also shows that something has gone very badly wrong. In verse 27, God is not far from us, but we have extreme trouble finding him. He's right there. But we are reaching out for him like people feeling our way in the dark. We have a problem. And our problem is that we try to reverse the order of things. God made us, but we are forever trying to remake him and mold him into what we want him to be. That's what the Athenians were doing with their rows of idols. They were trying to make God the way they wanted him to be. They were in control of their gods. They could chisel them into whatever shape they wanted and they could pick them up and move them to wherever they wanted. We have that same problem. God made us, but we are forever trying to remake him. We can do that in a lot of different ways. One way is just to put ourselves in God's place. We make ourselves the final authority. The bottom line in life is what we want. Another more subtle way to remake God is to imagine that he exists to do what we want. He's like a genie in a bottle. With that remade God, well, if you get into trouble, just fire off a quick prayer, and if God's doing his job, he'll sort out the trouble for you. Along the same lines, there's the God whose only desire is to make us happy. If we want something, then he wants us to go ahead and chase after it. That remake of God is very popular today. It's a God who would never dream of saying no to us. He just wants us to be happy. But all those remade gods are no better than the marble statues in Athens. They're all made by us. And that is our deep problem. We're so determined to be God ourselves that even though the true God is not far from us, we're like people stumbling around in the dark. Our responsibility is to repent. To turn from all of our ambitions to remake God and acknowledge finally his true position. Verse 30 says, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance. That doesn't mean he was happy with it or that he excused it. It means he didn't bring on it the full punishment that it deserved. But one day he will. So Paul says, now he commands all people everywhere to repent. 
you'll notice that Paul has not mentioned Jesus yet. If this is a summary of his main points, then he has spent almost his whole speech laying out the big picture for us. And that is exactly what the Bible does. It takes thousands of years of history to get to Jesus. That's represented by over two-thirds of your Bible. And that's because we can only make sense of Jesus and appreciate him if we grasp the big picture about God and ourselves. But having painted that big picture, Paul does get to Jesus. Jesus is the reason repentance is so urgent for us. In verse 31, For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. At the center of the Bible's big picture is a person, a unique man, the judge appointed by God. God has chosen to relate to us through the perfect go-between, a man who is God, one who can represent God to us and us to God. And the last thing that Paul says is, we know this man is the one because God raised him from the dead. That was God's way of showing us who this man really is. And that's where Paul stops. Some commentators think that he planned to stop there. Some think he was interrupted and never got to finish his speech. If we look at Paul's other sermons and his letters, it does seem more likely that he was interrupted here. He would surely have gone on to mention Jesus by name and explained how to be saved through Jesus. But look what causes people to interrupt him in verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. Sometimes we think that people's reactions to the gospel today are new reactions. But there are no new reactions. On the inside, people today are no different from 2,000 years ago. We stumble still over the same things. And we raise the same objections. The Greeks did not believe in resurrection. They knew that dead people stay dead. Sneering at the idea of Jesus' resurrection is not a new thing. It's as old as the New Testament. So whenever we come against objections to the Bible's teaching, we should never think that our generation has come up with the killer objection to Christianity. The same objections have been recycled for 2,000 years. And the church has continued to grow, despite the objections and the sneering. And of course, on one level, this objection is perfectly understandable. Dead people don't come back to life. But the point is, if one ever did, 
that would confirm he was a unique person. That's the point the New Testament makes over and over again. The fact that Jesus was raised in a world where people don't rise, that's powerful proof he is unlike anyone else. And so while there have always been people who sneer, there have also always been those who hear about the resurrection and say, we want to hear more about this. And that's the mixed reaction that Paul gets here. Then we're told in verse 34, a few men became followers of Paul and believed. That seems a very strange way to put it. They became followers of Paul. What it means is they followed Paul in order to hear more from him. His speech here was really only laying the foundation. These people needed to hear more about Jesus in order to believe in Jesus. So first they were followers of Paul and then maybe days or weeks later followers of Jesus. What do we take away from this? Well, first of all, we can take confidence from this. By giving us the Bible, God has given us an explanation that makes sense of our whole existence. The Bible gives us a worldview, not just little disconnected insights. The Bible makes sense of the whole deal. Existence, the human condition, the longings that we feel in our hearts, our purpose, and our ultimate destiny. Of course, people can be presented with the Bible's worldview and still walk away from it. But they cannot say that it's trivial. They can't deny that it gives a comprehensive explanation for the world and for our place in the world. So we can be confident. As we present the message of the Bible, we are presenting something that has weight. It has genuine relevance for the big questions as well as the small ones. And second, we have to be patient. In Thessalonica and Berea, Paul could just walk into a synagogue, he could start with Jesus and then say, you know the scriptures. So measure what I'm saying about Jesus against those scriptures that you know. But in Athens, Paul had to start at the very beginning. And so do we. It's not enough today to say, God loves you and Jesus died to save you. The average person is going to respond to that by saying, well, who's God and why do I need saving? God has given us the big picture. And as we speak to people, we have to be patient enough to help them see that big picture. And that means finally, we have to be men and women who examine the scriptures for ourselves. It's not enough just to know John 3.16. For the good of our own souls, and for the good of the world around us, 
We need to know the whole truth of the Bible. And ultimately, the whole Bible points us to Jesus. That's where Paul's speech in Athens ended. And it's where we're, we're going to end this morning. We're going to sing, All my days I will sing this song of gladness. And then Lion of Judah.